This podcast was produced by Morley Radio. Welcome everyone to Artcast. Just a reminder, you can listen back to season one, which includes artist support pledge founder Matthew Burrows, Goldie, and Morley Chelsea alumni Susan Collis. The other episodes of this season two are also available with Andy Holden, Russell Shaw Higgs, Mira Kalix, Barry Rygate, Helen Kirkham, alumni Hannah Uzor, Peter Kennard, Jeremy Della, and Indy184. Artcast is a podcast presented by myself, Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at the Chelsea Centre, Morley College. The decision to do this podcast was originally inspired by photographs taken during the polio outbreak in the 1940s, where students were remotely taught by radio. It's a series of informal discussions with artists, designers, musicians about their work and lifestyle. The aim is to disseminate material for our students and students beyond the college in limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they are taking a break from the screen. So I'm really excited to welcome artist and leader of artists run space, Art Lacuna, Chris Corkwell, live here in the studio, along with our HNC fine art student, Phoebe Ingleby. Chris was born in 1985 and lives in London. His work explores consumer culture within a capitalist framework, utilizing contemporary technologies, performative and interactive elements to critique the social systems and processes which operate around us and highlight the rate at which products are consumed and commodified. Corkwell graduated with a master's in fine art from Wimbledon College of Art in 2012. He has exhibited nationally and internationally in Mumbai, India, as part of a cross-collaborative venue, Project India, which is Asia Arts Projects and the One Percenters Art Collective in 2011. He's also had a residency in Tokyo, Japan, as part of Tokyo's Wonder Sites Creator in Residence program. He has recently completed residency programs in Mumbai in 2011, Tokyo Wonder Site in 2012, and at the Bohunk Institute in Nottingham in preparation for his show Sensorama, which was in 2013. His work forms part of the permanent collection at Space 118. So Art Lacuna is an artist-led space which was established in May 2013, located in an old coroner's office near Clapham Junction Station. It accommodates artists' studios, a residency and research programme, as well as project and exhibition space. How are you today? I'm good, yeah. Thanks for having me. Excellent to see you. We've also got Phoebe again, who was with us in the last episode. And I believe Phoebe wants to kick us off with the questions. Yes, sure thing. So um, I just wanted to ask a bit first about um, your work, because obviously I know you run um, Lacuna, you know, you run a gallery. But I was really interested looking on your website at um, some of the work you were displaying. And um, so, yeah, I thought your work was really interesting because it draws on this idea of, you know, the found object, the ready-made and a bit on Duchampian politics. But you cast these objects in plaster, which is, you know, an interesting take on that kind of school of thought. What did influence you? What kind of artists did influence you? I mean, did you look at like Duchamp and the ready-mades and modernism and stuff? I'd say, yeah, just modernism and Duchamp and that kind of the whole idea of the found object uh, is definitely a big influence on my work but I think trying to take it to the kind of it's almost looking at I guess like Warhol and Factory and this whole idea Mm. of consumer iconography and iconography that's very kind of you know it's present in everywhere it's like the material plentitude is out there in the Mm. public domain everyone knows Coca-Cola everyone knows Nike everyone knows these brands and for me, yeah, it's it's more about playing with the materiality of it and looking at, so the idea of kind of taking these objects and then casting them in, initially the basketballs was casting them in plaster and playing with kind of colour, but then go, harking back to my previous works, which is based on kind of By the World of Coke, which are these Coca-Cola bottles, which the only thing I'm changing on there is the labelling. Um, it was more about then trying to make it more real and make mm. this idea of kind of, 
the object looks like a basketball. So I've recently been for the past kind of two years casting them in jasmineite, mm. painting them up to look as though they are basketballs, as though they are just a found object, mm. when in reality they weigh 10 kilos. So, yeah. um, and playing with that idea of, you know, of materiality and what is real and our perception of kind of, you know, something, a ball which you look at and you think, well, it's basketball, it's light, mm. you can pick it up. Yeah, and then when yeah. it's 10 kilos, it's kind of this. Mm. Um, and for me, that is a, I guess quite a nice metaphor for Nike and you know a lot of brands nowadays that have these kind of if you were to look at their advertisements look at the way they kind of put themselves out in the public domain now uh, they're very much kind of jumping on the bad bandwagon of kind of protest and wokeness and mm-hmm. being like yeah we are supportive of mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus uh, we are you know that we have great kind of uh, labor practices and we pay a decent wage and in reality they still use you know nike in particular mm-hmm. still outsources and uses sweatshops in latin america and asia mm-hmm. um so this metaphor that you know in i guess like the basketball is the kind of nike in its moral aspirations not being able to like lift up to the hoop Right. Which is, you know, the kind of glass ceiling of like, yeah, we. This is how we're putting ourselves out there in the mm. public domain. We're having Colin Colin Kaepernick front our campaigns. We're now using protest as commodity. We're now turning, you know, and we're mm. wanting to basically jump on this kind of leftist agenda. And you know, which, you know, I'm all on board as a socialist myself. It's like, yeah, <laughs> there should be equality across the board. Mm. But when brands for me are using it in a very kind of hypocritical way yeah i mean they're using it to, to sell yeah they're using it yeah. at the end of the day and that's everything within kind of neoliberal society and i yeah. guess that's what my work is primarily about is looking at those kind of social structures that are out there in the public domain and recontextualizing them so kind of like duchamp woods you know taking an everyday object and recontextualizing it within the space of the gallery and it's that kind of i guess trying to a lot of my work often has kind of interactive elements or requires some participation on the part of the audience. And so through that interaction or repeating those kind of processes of kind of consumption mm. uh, within the gallery space, for me, it's about highlighting the rate at which we consume these products or how we consume them or getting people to kind of question, you know, is it, are, they, are these ethical brands, you know, are the big brands ethical or the way that this is produced and, I guess through reproducing them in certain ways is for me highlighting that and highlighting those processes. Mm, that's so interesting. And it's also interesting because, you know, um, objects like the Nike basketball and um, Coca-Cola, like they're extremely wasteful, these brands, you mm. know, like environmentally, like have such an awful footprint. So it's interesting using something kind of permanent and intentional like plaster to cast, you know, these mass produced objects that will probably end up in landfill eventually. So <laughs> yes. it's um you know it's a really interesting take on it. No, it's uh I mean, yeah, I guess part and parcel of being an artist and yourself again and I guess everyone like there's the hypocrisy to everyone because we are all consumers. Mm. We're all complicit in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um but part of that is through, you know, the essential need to buy clothes or oh, yeah, yeah, you know or but at the same time i guess for me yeah like it's interesting then producing these objects i guess like most artists you are producing you're mm. producing a product you're producing yeah. a finished item that at the end of the day yeah like you say probably will end up <laughs> no in... I, didn't, I didn't mean your work no like, but, but i mean but of the actual but the, objects, but the actual objects yeah, yeah. is highlighting yeah, it, yeah. It, it's elevated because it's mm. an artwork which yeah. i always no, find yeah. interesting which is then for me goes mm. into kind of talking about the art market yeah. in of itself, which is separate, I guess, to mm. to consumerism. It's consumerism squared or it's yeah. elitist consumerism because it's so value is then attributed to an art object based upon what people are willing to pay for mm. it. Yeah. And it's only a wealthy 1% really mm-hmm. who are investing and buying that purely for the purpose of then as an investment because then it's mm. sold on for more money mm-hmm. yeah. and it's interesting as an artist like yeah like i don't think most artists set out to be part of that mm. agenda or part of that world but ultimately also as artists you want to make a living out of yeah. your artwork so it's kind of <laughs> a catch true. 22 it's like <laughs> what do you do yeah. i mean like and I, and I don't think art necessarily is going to fix i mean there's obviously you know 
Freeze magazine on um, on Instagram has some great memes and the white <laughs> pube always, you know, highlighting this fact that art isn't about necessarily solving the world's problems and more often than not maybe we're adding to, to it mm. but at the same yeah. point for me at its core function art is um it's a visual language and it's about communicating an idea and as long as you're trying to trying to do that through your work then i think that's all that we can do and i think making socially aware our work or making work you know that is of its time and as as is and it's a social commentary mm. i think most artists are probably doing that and by their very nature doing that and commenting on the things that are affecting them as an individual do you see your um website which i think is brilliant do you see it as a work in itself or is it just amazingly designed because <laughs> i i mean ironically when i was looking at it it sort of gives that feeling of a high-end brand um and a sort of it's set out so that you actually do scroll through the work and consume the work and mm. uh yeah so i was just wondering the website itself is that is that a work in itself do you consider that I guess, I mean, I guess like most, I say, oh, I'm just going to narrow it down to artists. I'd say creatives, I mean, Instagram as a way of kind of for people to consume visual information and particularly artworks or design or yeah. any of the creative fields and as well as people's foods and pets. Um I guess that's kind of where I took my influence from for the for the website and it more being so I I mean it's interesting I've never really thought of it as an artwork in of itself and I'm very bad at updating it um, <laughs> but it was kind of I guess along that idea of just scrolling through you know in a continuous loop so mm. it's just scrolling through images and then it's like you'll scroll and it's another page and it's images or video or you know and not necessarily wanting to give too much information away but i kind of viewed it it's almost like a mood board yeah the way i would kind of describe it so yeah maybe it is it it could be read as that but yeah i i guess the influence for that was more kind of like social media and in particular Mm -hmm. instagram and how that's laid out um i want to ask a little bit about your use of color um in your work so obviously color's quite important um especially with the you know the night basketball pieces um what was your inspiration for using quite like playful vibrant colors um, for those works especially yeah i think for the original iterations of that um yeah they were colorful and Mm. um it was like iridescent kind of like blues and yellows and pinks at the time because originally prior to that I was casting them in very cheap kind of builder's plaster um, which at first glance had this kind of look as though they could be real Mm. um, from a distance and that they kind of has the same kind of tonal colour but then it was just more about kind of highlighting the kind of I guess like looking again at materiality looking at kind of like some of them look the way they've kind of been cast, like they're made of sponge or, you know, and it kind of looking back, I guess, at like kind of like sports halls and particularly when you're a kid and using these kind of sponge yellow Mm. iridescent balls. Um, So it's looking at that, at the playfulness. Mm. And then, yeah, then I've kind of veered off of that to the point where now they look and are painted up to be just like a Nike basketball. So that, and then the materiality or the, the kind of like, second glances then come into like then the weight of the object Mm. or having kind of like these broken basketballs that look as though they're just shattered Mm. having just been dropped Mm. um and again like this idea that yeah it should be rubber and it looks like rubber but then it's you know cracked and Mm. in fragments on the floor yeah so maybe we could take it back to the early days of art lacuna uh, so it's established back in 2012, am I right? Yes. Yeah, so just after you completed your MA at Wimbledon, um, working with your peers, uh, Jane Harris, Alex March, and Amelia Critchlow in its infancy days. Um, I was just wondering, what was that moment when you and your peers thought, we should do something here, we should set something up? Um, I think it was in the the degree show stage which if i'm right casting my mind back to 2012 (laughs) um was uh, over the summer period because i think our degree show actually opened in september so the ba courses had finished um and we had a period of time where the whole of the campus is then opened up to ma students and there was curatorial team that had allocated kind of rooms 
And at that time, I was in a space setting up for the degree show with Amelia. And we were kind of having the usual kind of conversations of like, oh, what's the plan once you graduate? Like, <laughs> once you no longer have access to kind of studios and facilities. And I'd already been part of a project from my BA days, or just after my BA days, in an artist group, which was called Vanilla Galleries. And we were doing pop-ups in and around kind of Leicestershire and Nottinghamshire. And they'd, just before I'd gone moved to, to London from Leicester, they just acquired a space in Leicester, which is now, they'd just teamed up with a group from De Montfort University called Cusp. Mm. And they were then amalgamating it to become this space to Queens, which is still going in Leicester's cultural quarter now. Yeah. Um, and so having been a part of that and setting that up, my kind of initial thoughts, my conversations with Amelia were like, it would be great if not just a, a pop-up, but, you know, something a bit more semi-permanent. Mm. Um, and we were very fortunate that Amelia had contacts in the in Wadsworth Council, yeah. which we were able to get in touch with after we had graduated. And, you know, we'd been in discussion with Jane and Alex, who had graduated the year before us, and they were happy to kind of come on board. And we, yeah, we were looking initially, as I say, it was going to be, either looking at getting like a vacant shop space and something on a temporary lease. And then it turned into something, we're very fortunate that it turned into something a lot more permanent that we were able to acquire a space on a business lease for three years. Yeah. And that's managed to roll on for, yeah. you know, consecutive years now. Because I wanted to talk a bit about um, like Arts Council funding and acquiring mm. that, but I think it'd be really good for our students and any upcoming artists to sort of hear about your innovative early ideas of fundraising and and if you could talk through some of the early ideas I, I remember one in particular that was pretty fun the one that was around Streatham oh in the yeah. in the bar yeah that was that yeah that was because we didn't actually acquire the space I think March 2013 was when we moved into the space yeah but our very like the initial kind of conception or idea was 2012 just after we graduated and we spent some time and then we decided to do kind of fundraising events, which again, like, I guess drawing upon our kind of like peer circle and we had a kind of Pechacucha event with invited speakers and it was in a bar, which they were happy to give us the space for free. And we were able to raise £2,000, which is what initially kind of got us going. Yeah. Um, and yeah, free drinks and... Pechacucha, which is great. I think we had Alistair Duncan, mm. um, Sharon Kivlin, yeah. who was uh, on our MA course, who was kind of our critical theory practice. She led that. And Holly Stevenson, which, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was a really good, good fun event for, you yeah. know, it, I guess like initially we we had this six month grace period as well from, you know, we needed to raise the money for the initial kind of deposit and first month's rent, which rely upon our kind of like peer circle. And then, but it was great that we were all able to kind of come together as a group and, mm -hmm. you know, and we were very clear in the outset that, you know, Art Lacuna was kind of this idea that it would be for kind of everyone, for yeah. uh, emerging artists and practitioners and that we were never going to be kind of a, I guess, a commercial gallery space. It was more, we were always going to be a project space and a space for experimentation. And I think everyone else kind of jumped on board that and were very supportive. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, we were lucky that with the council that we did have those contacts because we were able to negotiate as well on the business leads six months rent free, which gave us this grace period where we didn't have to necessarily worry about money. So from that initial fundraising event, we had six months where we nice. were able to come up with ways of, you know, well, how are we going to continue? Uh, yeah. And, you know, because unfortunately after six months, we did then have to pay rent. So yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, how are we going to do that? And how are we going to, you know, survive as a business model that isn't yeah. exploitative of artists and other practitioners. Mm. Yeah, so. and you do a really good job of that. You don't charge uh, exhibition fees, commissions. And did sorry to again cast your mind back to mm. 10 years ago, but yeah, did, you sort of, did the four of you sort of have an idea that it would be going for this long? Uh, no, well, yeah. I, say, I think the initial idea or what we were 
I guess our initial concept was something akin to what we were doing or what I was doing with Vanilla Galleries and Cusp were doing in Leicestershire, which was uh, contacting local authority or contacting estate agents about vacant commercial spaces and getting them on, say, like a, a two week or a month period and putting on like these pop-up exhibitions mm. in which you weren't paying kind of any rates, but they were empty, vacant spaces that mm. hadn't been, hadn't had any kind of interest. So it was kind of like coming in with the promise that, okay, we'll strip it out, we'll paint it up and we'll put on a show and then maybe this will revitalize it and there was some interest will come from that, from, I guess, like people seeing it as just an empty white space and being like, or seeing the exhibition in there and being like, oh, actually, I can see this as a hairdressers or whatever. And like other people's, you know, small businesses being like, okay, actually, yeah, I would like to take on this empty yeah. space now. Because I think before that's always the hardest thing when you go and see a space and, you, and it's just full of crap and rubbish and you're like well okay i've got to i've got to skip all this i've got to paint it i've got yeah. to refurbish it and it's amazing what a couple of coats of white paint will mm. actually do and i think yeah we when we were in leicestershire and we were doing that most of the spaces within the, that period that we had it would then end up going on to being let so yeah i think it was kind of this this reciprocal thing where landlords would be like actually this is a good thing for us to you know to have happen and you know it's mm. just sitting there empty otherwise so yeah it mm. sounds like a very like democratic environment i think it'll be fair to say because it's obviously yeah. artist-led it's not commercial it's very like you know it seems like you've got yeah very like egalitarian approach to like a kind of collective artist space um, and I just wanted to ask, like, what it, how have you found, like, operating as, like, a kind of network or, like, a group of artists? You know, I know lots of artists like to work very independently. You know, how have you found that kind of, like, do you collaborate a lot? Do you make make works together or do you kind of, like, is it more of, like, a creative space where you kind of, like, bounce off each other? I think it kind of harks back to, again, being in an academic institution and that kind of mm. idea of having your peers around you yeah and even if it doesn't result in necessarily immediate kind of collaborations mm. or collaborative practices it's having that support around one another um and that's kind of what the initial concept was when you know the four of us you know and that yeah. idea of how do you continue outside of mm. uh, an academic institution and without again with studio rents as well and having a more affordable space um, and also being able to provide opportunities for artists. And yeah, I think we've been very fortunate that, you know, we have gone on as long as we have. I mean, who's, who knows? We have got a new lease coming up next year, which I'm sure the council will put up the rate again. Um, but we've been very fortunate that in, during that time, we've not had to put up studio rent yeah. and we've not had to... Um, and that we have been able to put on exhibitions and we've been able to receive funding and pay artists for their time. I think for us, that's always been important. And I think having that kind of support network is very important. And for myself, my own individual practice, I have studio space at Art Lacuna and it's it's been important having mm. those other creators around. Yeah, can you say a little bit about how it has evolved? Because mm. you're obviously the only original member and now there's yeah. different members. And it is incredibly resilient to have a, an artist run space this amount of time. And I was wondering if you could talk about how it's evolved and how you've incorporated studio spaces and also shifted the space around a bit. Yeah, so we, I mean, I think after that six month grace period um, and when we suddenly realized we had to pay rent, studios seemed the obvious way of being able to support ourselves without having to rely solely on funding. Mm. So we have, you know, we, we have applied for funding and been successful in funding. Uh, and it certainly helped over the years. But for us, it's always been, I guess, important not to solely rely mm. upon that in order to keep going and to be as sustainable as possible. And also, I guess, a lot of the exhibitions that we've wanted to put on and them being quite experimental, maybe we wouldn't have always received funding solely for those shows. Right. So. So it kind of evolved into initially the four studio spaces for the four founding members, which is myself, Alex, Jane, and Amelia. And 
then we decided to, I mean, we've slowly lost what has been or used in the past exhibition space to bring in new studio space. But we kind of expanded what were the initial studios into, I think, five studios. We converted the kitchenette area in the back, which was used for as like a screening room mm. before into a large studio space. And then finally, uh, three years ago, when we had our last kind of business lease renewal, in order to keep going and not put up studio rent, we added two more studio spaces. So shifted the wall as you entered into what was the original space and it was L-shaped and we shifted that wall across. So we became two equal size spaces and then that created six studio spaces yeah. on one side with mezzanine storage and then the project space as you directly enter the space. Mm. And yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest business model in the world in terms of, you know, we're it's all run on a voluntary basis, but that's part and parcel of why we, mm. you know, we're artists supporting artists and we are now at that point where it's, I always hesitate to say it's runs itself. Uh, it certainly requires work on our part, but we are at a point after, you know, initially we were putting in, I guess for those first three years, a lot of work doing kind of back-to-back exhibitions mm. and quite short exhibitions as well. It was like two week period and then a quick show change and then another opening. And it was kind of like that for three years. It was a lot and it was very full on. Yeah. And then it when we had the shift around of the space uh, three years ago now, it was kind of decided that actually we'll have longer exhibitions. And it just gives us that kind of breathing room and more time to kind of program and also be a bit more ad hoc with the space because we yeah. want to be able to to say yes to to various groups that or individuals that are approaching us as well mm. during the year. So we'll have our core program and then we'll have proposals that come mm. in throughout the year. And we'll, you know, if we think that they fit within the ethos of the space, then we're happy to kind of incorporate them or, you know, plan them for next year, as well as making the project space available to studio members for yeah. them to kind of curate projects as well or, or to have like to host ad hoc events like crits or, you know, screenings, those kind of things, or yeah. even if it's just working large scale. So, yeah. And have you got any sort of tips and how to work with the Arts Council or uh, Arts Council applications? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, my my tip, I would say, would go on, go on the White Pubes website because they do have successful applications on there and it's always good to to read over a, success, a successful application mm. there's definitely a so that's formula whitepube.co.uk yeah. yeah cool it, there's definitely a formula to writing a successful application yeah and again we were very fortunate with covid-19 relief fund that we were able to receive funding through that which we were then were able to give our studio members six months rent-free period and as well as pay them and commission them to make new work and then pay artists for the 2020 program, pay them a fee uh, and again, commission new works and projects for that. ACE is great for that, but then at the same time, it is bureaucracy and there is a load of ways that you do get tripped up. And again, just because you have one successful application doesn't necessarily mean that every application you then put in is going to be successful. Mm. So I think it's maybe also being aware that with funding applications that you will most likely fail at times, Mm -hmm. but there is also a success rate. And the more you do, the better you become at them and the more successful you will be. And I guess it's not taking it to heart when you are unsuccessful. And you can also receive feedback as to why your application, you know, so I'd definitely say like, if you do put in a funding bid, particularly with ACE and it's unsuccessful, uh, get in touch with them, ask for, you know, mm. individualized feedback because you just get receive an email saying, yeah. unfortunately you were unsuccessful, but n- no specifics as to why. And it's always good to know why you weren't okay. successful to know next time yeah that's good to know that they offer up feedback yeah Uh, that's good yeah which i think you know obviously it's hard when you know it's hard to know yeah uh or to ask where you've gone wrong or and i wouldn't even say it's necessarily wrong they are also competitive very competitive 
and again pots of money get allocated elsewhere my my hope was you know they actually made it they stripped away a lot of the bureaucracy for the COVID-19 relief fund back in 2020 mm. and my hope was you know or my hope for a lot of things that things would actually change or people would realize there is an alternative right you know and, and we had don't... Like, the artist support pledge and yeah that taken yeah off. and actually we don't necessarily need so much kind of bureaucracy mm. to be involved in funding and again this goes to wider society as well particularly when we relied upon i guess socialist me- measures to see mm. people through and help people through the pandemic yeah um and you know we became a lot more kind of inclusive and it realized that actually all this red tape we can get away with like we can do without it and actually a lot of the time it's just there for bureaucracy's sake and it doesn't actually need to exist unfortunately the arts council does seem to have gone back to (laughs) pre-pandemic i was gonna ask if you had any post-covid art world predictions um but you think everything is sort of back to normal yeah Yeah. the the structure's (laughs) normal in uh yeah in terms of your programming, um, have you got what's the upcoming exhibitions that you have? So because it took so long with with our 2020 program, um, because I think we were we were definitely kind of erring on the side of caution, particularly with COVID. Um, so we didn't kick off our 2020 program until September, I believe it was, with um, Roy Efrat and mm. Catching Webster. So it took us a while to actually get going again um and we certainly waited and aired on the side of caution so we didn't actually really finish our 2020 program alongside other things that then came up uh, mm. until 2021 oh, December okay. so there's quite a backlog so there was definitely a backlog yeah. and it was you know so we're we have a few kind of projects in the pipeline with spaces in swansea and an external art lacuna a collaborative show with a group in Spain called Farse, who oh, are wow. based in Barcelona. Is that something new, like collaborating with like sort of spaces, similar uh, artist-led we've, spaces? We've already had, so Farse have already done kind of, it's, I guess it's a two-part exhibition. They've already had a, the exhibition at Art Lacuna. Yeah. And then Art Lacuna studio members will be going to Spain. I believe we're looking at around kind of June now. Uh, we have collaborated with two queens in the past. So we've we've done it in the past tentatively, uh, and we've certainly worked with Middlesex University and UAL mm. on projects. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that, again, when I think when there's that shared ethos of project spaces and artist-led mm. uh, initiatives, it's kind of nice to, again, build it upon your community and your yeah. peer network that you already have to then collaborate and work with. And I guess when it comes to like Farsi in a space that, you know, them in Spain, it's nice to extend that out. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. As far as Spain, was that something you visited, a space you visited or just got in touch with? No, it's a space that uh, my co-director, Alex Duncan, okay. he knew some of the artists there and he'd already been involved with a project with them and they were very interested you know we'd again and i think that's how a lot of our kind of projects come about is just through conversation and through kind of dialogue with other artists and myself and alex going to exhibitions or going to degree shows or seeing work or you know and certainly instagram plays a big part in that now and seeing artists work or practice that we like and thinking that how they would fit in and how you know how we could envisage a show uh, within our space i guess we we work in a very kind of like organic way we're very flexible hence why our 2022 program is not set in stone at the moment and i guess that's quite a nice thing is that it is quite fluid and because we are artists in our own right we never wanted to necessarily be bogged down with the bureaucracy of running a space or with being a commercial space and looking at commission and looking at sales and looking at that as a way to survive Mm -hmm. it's for us it's always been about being peer-led and and working with artists and creatives and giving them a platform in which to experiment and show their work and kind of no holds bar so just kind of being like this is the space there's nothing in theory 
that you cannot do like you know yeah. we're and i think that's we've had some great exhibitions because that because there are no limitations set upon what yeah the outcomes can be or what how people can use no that sort of house space. style or, no, no it's really, yeah really broad so yeah in a way you've got six people involved on the programming at the moment so it's very very broad yeah which is great have you got any sort of 10 year anniversary plans for next year <laughs> no because <laughs> it's only just hitting home that it is yeah yeah 10 years fantastic uh, achievement i mean maybe we maybe we do another pech kucha event just a booze up <laughs> but no i mean part of something that we have been looking or need to program this year because of covid and because of the backlog of programming yeah uh, part and parcel of what we wanted to do with commissioning our studio members to make new work during that time mm. and giving them the funds you know giving them an artist fee and material costs to make new work was with a view to exhibit that so at some point this year and that was studio members at the time who now like Ines who now is in back in Spain and Antonia right. Atwood who has since left the studios but you know it'd be nice to kind of bring back together yeah. those artists but maybe maybe at some point there should be a a 10-year studio members kind of anniversary of like mm. exhibiting those artists work or even like a celebration of all the artists that we've kind of shown over the last 10 years yeah but the space is quite small so i don't think we'd be able to fit it <laughs> we'd have to put size restrictions on the work <laughs> yeah and I was going to talk to you a bit about your work as uh, in the in the world of technicians and technical roles because mm. I think you've you've done a lot of that and you could if you just touch upon some of your experiences within the art world and any advice for students that are emerging from the world of education and thinking about going into this line of work. Yeah, I mean, again, I kind of happily fell into it, it was a happy accident, but it was through Art Lacuna. So it was through doing installs and helping artists install exhibitions at Art Lacuna. And I guess through my own practice being a bit technically minded or, you know, certainly with doing kind of 3D and sculptural practice. Um, But... I saw some very nice plimps you were working on on uh, (laughs) Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Although they're not... I'm very pedantic. I'm still trying to get them to that super high gloss finish with no imperfections. I'm sanding them down again with an orbital sander come the weekend. But but yeah, it it was through actually our first exhibition at Art Lacuna, which was Alistair Duncan's exhibition, mm. which again, 10 years ago, I can't remember the title of the show, but he I helped him install the show and it was a series of prints and flags. And through Alistair, he was doing technician work out in Hong Kong for mm. Art Basel. Uh, so he just happened to he he kind of said oh you're you're quite good at this you know and say goods like you know I could hang a print straight uh, <laughs> using a level um, and so he said that they were looking for texts for art bars in Hong Kong yeah and then it was through that and then through the contacts that I then made out there that I then began to got get more work at galleries in London so I guess I mean I guess the advice is if it's something that you're kind of interested in I mean I guess it's general advice I would put across the board for all artists is think about not just necessarily when you're making the work think about the work once it's installed or how Mm. you would like it installed yeah because not just throw it in a space and yeah yeah, and also think about the practicalities of how you know so if that's hanging fixtures or how you know how is this going to hang on the wall there's definitely been times where you know and even with professional practices you know artists you know that you come across work and it's like and it's left up to technician staff to be like well how is this <laughs> going on a wall <laughs> and part of, like that is kind of problem solving and that's expected as mm. part of the job but then it's also i think if you're wanting to get into that as a you know as a freelance kind of role or looking even as a full-time in a gallery it's definitely worth investing some time thinking about how works are installed you know what knowing the difference between a lined plasterboard wall knowing if it's masonry knowing what fixtures to use knowing how to hang a painting Mm. knowing you know how to measure across and 
level up a work and yeah. and space work evenly it's definitely worth taking the time to you know and part of doing a degree show is i mm-hmm. guess learning those skills but it's yeah. also worth learning them prior to degree show so you're not just in the deep end yeah and I then it's carry- important to have like curatorial teams even from a young age yeah even, even if it's a levels or foundation yeah like and, curatorial teams and technician sort of teams and and thinking yeah again thinking if it is just a, a ready-made or it's just you know it's like or it's a object how is it installed is it mm. on a plinth is it floor based is it or does it go on the wall and if it does go on the wall is it keyhole so that it just sits off one screw mm. Or does it have to have a fixture like a split baton fitted? Like, I mean, I think, yeah, it's always worth as an artist investing that time in the production whilst you're making the artwork, thinking about it finished, thinking yeah. about how this is installed in a space. Yeah. So, really, and that's good not answer. to make my job easier. That's just, a, I think that's just a, a key skill that, you know, because going forward, you have to think about installation, you have to think about. If through, even if it will get through the door, things like that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Does it need to be split? Does yeah. It need to be Does divided? it need bending plates or mm. things like? I think nothing is off limits in terms of a person's practice. And I think you should certainly like push those boundaries and think about playing with materials and have fun whilst doing it. But then also think about logistically and how, like, I guess, like envisioning it within a space and imagining it in an exhibition how you want it to be fused because i think that as well as you know it's nice to have it to play and experiment in a studio mm-hmm. but i think the ultimate goal is for everyone is to exhibit the object or exhibit the artwork and it's to and i think everyone should in their mind picture how it looks yeah and i think that's the key part for most artists i think you know i daydream when i'm making work in the studio about shows and how certain works relate to one another and how Mm. and whether there's a visual language between certain works and whether i'm grouping them together as you know as part of my practice and it's like well yeah i can see the threads between this work and that work and but at the same time i I guess i'm very fortunate having art lacuna's project space in which to play around and install work but it's definitely worth thinking about during the production oh definitely i think we're quite lucky here because we have quite a lot of studio space uh, for our students and there's even like bookable project space which i think nice. is really nice as you say and sort of leading on from that i ask a lot of the guests what would your dream art school consist of and that can be in terms of facilities curriculum teaching structure or or even a handout if there was some sort of handout that a student would take away i mean that's quite a few things i've asked there but dream art school structure for one it would be that they would be an art school yeah, and maybe not amalgamated into the university system with student loans and fees mm. um, and that they would be like they used to be and free at the point of access. Yes. Because um, <laughs> I think... And, fun- it's hard, and it's, funded, and funded. Yeah, because yeah. it is hard enough. I think most of the kind of courses outside of creative fields, you're you're not expected to spend your own money producing works be that you know whatever the practice may be whether it's uh fine art or design or Mm. interior design or most creative courses you're forking out tuition fees and then on top of that material costs which are throughout the year and it's expensive it's expensive to have a creative practice Mm -hmm. and that's why most artists outside of an academic institution and certainly you know most artists i know through their ba and ma are having to self-fund themselves through part-time work and then even when you are outside of that academic institution supplement that again through other forms of income through other works you know it's very rare that an artist is making money through their own practice yeah particularly straight out of university and particularly even in university and i think yeah so for me, it would just be offsetting those costs of and lumping people with debt mm. for the rest of their lifetime. You yeah. know, it would be, yeah. Yeah, because it's a massive deterrent, really, for, yeah. for people. Like, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And, and again, that's not to say that you have to have an arts education in order to be no. an artist. It's not, it's not to make it exclusive, but also they definitely 
art schools in their original incarnation when they weren't amalgamated into the university system were a lot more of a melting pot of ideologies and mm-hmm. and people from all walks of life and mm. and I think something of that is lost and I think now again maybe the focus is less on the work and more about grades and about yeah. you know and I yeah, think definitely and I think again and also that's, once you're 18 there's absolutely no funding you, yeah once you're past 18 nothing more to learn in life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is just totally wrong yeah you know and I think most tutors uh, are doing their best and most course leaders mm. are doing their absolute best yeah. to teach in very hard circumstances yeah, definitely. Uh, with a lot of external pressure put upon them. And certainly because I think even at a, even at key stage four and three, even in the national curriculum, it's very hard fitting, uh, I guess, kind of creative subjects into these regimented uh, standardized curriculums that like you know it's about yeah. it's about ticking boxes it's about yeah. you know this is how it's graded and mm-hmm. this is what you need to do to get a certain grade mm-hmm. and i i get that there needs to be a certain element of that but i feel like it's very stifling to creativity as well yeah. and i think and it's, i think we've learned that everyone's creative it's just they haven't had the freedom necessarily to be creative yeah I think it's knocked out of a lot of people at a very young age yeah. because what is deemed to be good, I say like good in hyphens is that it's, it's so much focus is put on drawing skills or, yeah. and that's not to say if that comes naturally to some people, which it does, or it certainly can be honed then great but at the same time a lot of there's a lot of focus is taken away from experimentation and and like i said earlier for me art is a visual language it's about visually communicating an idea that can be done in in many ways and it and being able to draw technically well isn't necessarily always the best outcome mm-hmm. for a certain people and i think yeah in key stage three and four there's definitely this thing of you know before i moved to london i was teaching key stage three and there Mm. was things that the most common comment that i would get is oh but sir i can't draw (laughs) and i think because students would go well yeah technically draw you know i can't technically draw Mm. well and and there was so much emphasis a, placed in the national curriculum that yeah. yeah, by the time you get to art foundation and or even A levels, when people you know are choosing mm. uh, what to do, you know, and people are kind of put off the creative courses, they they don't think it's for them or because you know. of the risk taking element. Because it's interesting, the youngest age I've taught is sixteen, mm. and there is I, I did notice at that time a lot of people were afraid to experiment and it's sort of had to really be trained that yeah. that, that element of risk taking yeah and and, yeah. and even up to university level because we're so regimented in the way that we that with the national curriculum and doing kind of exams and being moderated mm. that there's an expectation of like this is how i get the good grade and so it, it and it which i i think is is stifling to a lot of creative practices mm. And I think, and people and students might be worrying about, and my... So maybe a, just a pass-fail grading criteria. Obviously, failure, yeah. then you get a referral. But, yeah, but, yeah, but I think, as, again, like, it would be very... Because, again, like, my partner who teaches at Goldsmiths and mm. uh, and London Met, something that she's found is that, yeah, students are very focused on the grade but also very uh, again like so almost paralyzed by this idea of failure right. as well that they don't take the risks and i think it's again that it's that's a university system and again this standardized kind of marking kind yeah. of way of like that it's kind of been forced upon so a risk not in terms of failing in an experiment but failing in an exam or project well, yeah, and also, uh, and not taking the risk in terms of experimentation. I think, yeah, being kind of paralyzed by this fear of like, but this is what I have to do to get, you know, and something that they get time and time again is like students asking, but what, what can I do to get 
the good grades or what do I need to do? It's like having the checklist of ticking off or I think something that when I was doing my MA, it was good to go around with peer groups and understand why, you know, seeing, I think it was maybe in the first semester being handed the kind of like grading criteria Mm. and going through in a peer crit Mm. and understanding why things would get a certain mark or why certain works are getting a certain mark yeah and grading as a as a student body yeah but then also part of that is kind of realizing that this isn't the necessarily your tutors saying that the work is bad and it again it's like i guess i go back to like the arts council funding and failure doesn't necessarily mean that you're not doing the right thing yeah I think it's very hard for creatives to fit within bureaucratic kind of uh, and neoliberal structures and that it's being aware of that and taking failure on board and being like, and sometimes you take the route of going like, well, do I do what will get me the good grade Mm. or do I do what I want to do and makes me happy and and having fun whilst doing it and being like, Johanna, who was I guess my... it goes back to time as well, though, especially if students are working part-time. Or yeah. A, a lot of students even, you know, they work extra days because of yeah. that debt that's that's hanging over. Yeah. So there's less time to, to play. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And unfortunately, that goes down to cost of living, which yeah. is only getting worse. And... Yeah. But there was another way. Yeah. We had a, we had a choice in yeah. 2019. We did. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah. That's I and 2017 and 2017 as well. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Chris. That's okay. It's, thanks um, for having me. Really good to have someone in person. As well. <laughs> Is this the first? Uh, second. Yeah. Second. Yeah. But no, it's great. Great to see you. Good. Yeah. Good to see you. Cool. Whether you're interested in fashion, fine art, or ceramics, Morley College London offers a wide range of level 3 diploma courses to ensure you have the right qualifications to start your higher education journey. Find out more at www.morleycollege.ac.uk.